Welcome back to Franchise Festival, a podcast where we go in-depth with noteworthy video game series from the last 40 years. For Season 1, we've been covering Nintendo's The Legend of Zelda, and for Episode 22, we're going to be covering Hyrule Warriors Age of Calamity. Be aware that this is a spoiler-heavy podcast, so if you are interested in discovering the story and gameplay of Age of Calamity for yourself, we do encourage you to play it before listening. We are your hosts, Chris. I'm Jasmine. I'm Spencer. And we're glad to have you with us today. Let's talk Age of Calamity. One quick note before we get started, our main source for the development information on this is a November 2020 Famitsu interview translated by Nintendo Everything with producer Yosuke Hayashi, director Ryota Matsushita, and series producer Eiji Aonuma. Like the first Hyrule Warriors, this was developed by Koei Tecmo with support from Nintendo. It was not an in-house Nintendo project. The prestigious developers of Dead or Alive Extreme Beach Volleyball. (laughs) exactly yeah exactly (laughs) if you'd like some more history on koei tecmo and the warriors or muso series you can go check out our first episode on hyrule warriors that gets into some depth on um, kind of the history of how these games came to be but for this one we're going to be looking uh, just specifically at age of calamity which unfortunately there is scant information about What we do know is that uh, sometime in the last few years, sometime since 2017, the Breath of the Wild director Hidemaro Fujibayashi and its art director Satoru Takizawa pitched a Hyrule Warriors game set during the Great Calamity, the uh, horrifying rise of Ganon that occurred 100 years before the events of Breath of the Wild. So they pitched that idea to Aonuma, who thought it it sounded pretty engaging, but it seems that maybe either the resources weren't available at Nintendo, they were dedicated to other projects, or Aonuma simply thought that it would be a good fit for the Warriors template, the one-on-one thousand battlefield type of design. So he approached Yosuke Hayashi at Koei Tecmo personally to request that Koei Tecmo develop a Hyrule Warriors sequel set in the world of Breath of the Wild. This was rather serendipitous timing because Koei Tecmo staff had already been kind of kicking around the idea of what might be a suitable follow-up to Hyrule Warriors since they produced the first game, uh, shucks, probably about four years earlier. The way that Nintendo and Koei Tecmo interacted for this project is a bit different from how they had handled Hyrule Warriors. The only involvement from Nintendo at the start was that Nintendo provided key specifications for the story that Age of Calamity was going to tell. They also provided all of the uh, art for the past versions of Breath of the Wild character designs. Uh, For example, Pura or uh, Robbie, you know, those sorts of characters were furnished by Nintendo. None of those characters were created by Koei Tecmo. But they did leave virtually all of the gameplay mechanics up to the outside studio. 
and Aonuma and Nintendo ended up very happy with the results. Uh, so happy, of course, that this became Nintendo's tentpole release for fall 2020. Koei Tecmo's staff was also responsible for pitching how characters should act in cutscenes, so while Nintendo dictated the overall story arc, Koei Tecmo did have the opportunity to fill in the gaps with character interactions. As far as I'm aware, every voice actor from Breath of the Wild also came back to voice their characters in this game, uh, which is pretty nice. It provided a, a strong level of continuity here, in addition to the art design, which directly echoes the Breath of the Wild art design. I almost wish that, I mean, I like the art style, yeah. but I almost wish that it, they hadn't used it because, um, I, you know, and I'm not, I'm not an expert on the, the FPS thing. You'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. but it feels like this game runs at 30 FPS. It runs at 30 FPS and that's frames per second for anybody listening right, um, right. who isn't, isn't familiar with the jargon. Um, it, it runs at 30 frames per second at the best of times. Exactly. Yeah, if you're using Impa, I th I think I've got it sub 10 before. It can yeah. really choke up. Yeah, yeah, it's not quite Nintendo 64 slideshow level, but it gets dangerously close at times, yeah. uh, depending upon how many characters are on screen. And I think you're right, Jasmine. I think a big part yeah. of that is just how beautiful this game looks. I and you know, and it's so I hate to like fault it for that. Because it is so beautiful, and it's a great style, but dang it, I just don't think it's great for a Muso game. It's It just yeah. it, 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 it takes up too much memory and space, and it, it kind of gets in the way of the actual fun. Yeah, like at no point... I mean, I think the environments are pretty compelling. Um, we'll, we'll get to a little bit of that later, because I think there are some problems with the actual level design itself, mm -hmm. in how it, it hews to Breath of the Wild... But as far as the look of them, I think the levels look really nice. The characters mm -hmm. look really nice. They do. I suspect the biggest problem is just how complex the enemy models are. Mm. Like, there's there's no reason that all of these Bokoblins need to look about as detailed as they do in Breath of the Wild. Yeah. But rather than having three of them on screen, you right. might have 30 of them on screen. Which, like, right. once you're at that level of, like, articulation and complexity with the character models... Like, I guess it looks more lifelike. They look a little bit more organic, but at the rate that they're popping in, because only so many of them can be rendered at a time, right. it feels like you kind of give up as much lifelike quality as you gain. And I just wanted to say, as somebody who doesn't pay attention to the FPS, mm -hmm. the fact that they got me to pay attention to it is a really bad thing, because I tend to be quite <laughs> forgiving. Yeah. So <laughs> this is bad if I notice. Speaking to the, uh, the the technical quirks on that, we don't know exactly when this game was in production, but it is the first game that we've covered on this show, and one of the first Nintendo games to have been published during the pandemic. So there's a reasonable likelihood that some portion of this game's development occurred during kind of difficult work-from-home conditions. And it does make me wonder if that contributed to some of its technical shortcomings. That's pure speculation on my part. But this mm -hmm. game is so rough around the edges, uncharacteristically so for a game published by Nintendo, mm -hmm. that I do have to wonder if it was either rushed or uh, it, was, it simply ended up this way as a matter of difficulty and work condition. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. The reviews were kind of mixed on it. I would say they were overall positive. 
um, in some ways, maybe uh, editorializing a bit, maybe a little more positive than the game deserved. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the the reviews were fairly positive at the time. Um, they they did draw attention to the excellent presentation, uh, as well as the faithfulness to the identity of Breath of the Wild in much the same way that uh, actually a little bit closer to what Koei Tecmo had done for Dragon Quest with Dragon Quest Heroes. As you, uh, as you might suspect from our own descriptions of it, the negative reviews tended to focus on frame rate issues, as well as the limited scope of characters, enemies, and settings compared to the first Hyrule Warriors game. Of course, the first Hyrule Warriors game was a celebration of, shoot, 20 plus years of Zelda history. Mm-hmm. This relates to a single Legend of Zelda game. Uh, the trade-off is that you can have a game that hews more closely to the source material because your source material isn't 15 different games with different mechanics and art styles, but you lose some of that variety and versatility that you had in the original Hyrule Warriors. Let's talk gameplay. Spencer, can you kick us off here? Yeah, so this is a Musou or Warrior style game. This was actually my first Musou game, so I can't speak too much to how much this adheres to that uh, kind of formula. Mm-hmm. But as Chris alluded to, it generally involves uh, fighting massive swarms of enemies at a time. Uh, and then occasionally engaging with a single kind of tough enemy in the crowd that requires more of like a 1v1 duel style combat. Uh, there's 18 different playable characters in the game. Each one kind of has its own combos and moveset and kind of special technique that's mapped to the right trigger. We'll kind of go into those in detail as we go through the individual characters. Uh, but each mission you bring, I think, between one and four, yep. and you can control the movement of all the different characters and swap between them at will. So you can kind of assign and move NPCs to control characters around the map to different objectives that you need to capture to kind of complete the level. These typically take the form of either uh, defeating X amount of enemies, defeating specific bosses, uh, reaching certain points on the map, sometimes a time limit, sometimes not. Yeah. I just wanted to mention that, um, since you haven't played the original, uh, this was a quality of life uh, Mm -hmm. upgrade in the original that they added on in the DLC that, that you could switch between characters. So they clearly brought it forward in this game. See, I liked being able to swap between the characters. I feel like going back and playing earlier ones would be difficult now. It is very difficult. Yeah, it's it's plainly the best way to play this. So you can you can move across the battlefield really quickly. In earlier ones, you just have to hoof it and hope yeah. that your AI buddies are not screwing up too badly. Mm-hmm. There's three kind of different mission types that you end up going on. Well, I mentioned the different mission objectives, right. but from the kind of the overworld menu... There's the campaign missions, which usually are sandwiched by cutscenes and progress the plot. You've got challenges, which are 
you know, kind of side missions that you actually play. And then there's quest missions, which are essentially just resource hand-ins that give you some kind of upgrade, either character-specific uh, or affecting your entire party. The quests that have you turn in a bunch of resources um, in order to get, like, bonuses or extra moves or something like that. Yeah, these uh, that takes the place of the character upgrade menu from the original Hyrule Warriors. So this is kind of a, a bold design decision on behalf of Koei Tecmo that paradoxically makes the game more like Breath of the Wild and less like Breath of the Wild. On the plus side, the missions are laid out on that that overworld map that's directly from the Sheikah Slate in Breath of the Wild. So you have missions uh, on the ground occurring where you would expect them to with the appropriate topography from Breath of the Wild's Hyrule. But it introduces a few really major structural problems in the process. Mm-hmm. One of which is that it takes so much longer to upgrade your characters in this than it does in the original Hyrule Warriors. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because you can't just go to the character that you want to upgrade and click through the menu and decide, I want them to have another portion to their combo, or I want them right. to heal extra hearts, or, you know, I, I have an extra special attack gauge, or, or what have you. Instead, you just need to kind of blunder your cursor around the map until you happen to come across an icon that lets you upgrade that character. Well, you can navigate to each individual character through the menu and go through their quest specifically. Yeah, I figured this out about halfway through. I never figured it out. Oh, no. Really? Yeah. You just hit left and right on the the map. You can scroll through quests and character stuff. Oh, no. Oh, Chris. Well, this is on me. (laughs) This was a big point of complaint, too. They hide this stuff in the menus and you don't know and they don't tell you. That's a problem with these games. Yeah, like I wish that had been a little bit more emphasized Mm. because I would have done it since about half the characters I didn't care that much about. And it would have been nice to be able to upgrade judiciously the ones that I wanted as opposed to spending five minutes moving my cursor around the map like a chump. Yeah, but even so, um, it still wasn't as intuitive as the original game where you could just... You select a character and they show you the things to be upgraded and you could just hit left and right and it would switch between all the characters so you could basically look at them all and go okay do i have all of their combos do i have heart pieces do i have you know uses of potions and things like that so you could like easily look and compare them all you can't Mm -hmm. do that in this game agreed yeah and and it's it's a bit of a function for better or worse again of the fact that the characters are more differentiated in this than they are in the original Hyrule Warriors, that you don't really know what potential upgrades might exist for a given character, like what their combos might look like, how their special attacks might play out. Uh, So being able to see it cleanly in a menu would have been appreciated, even though, um, as it turns out, I I could have, uh, I could have seen at least a portion of it in the menu yeah i really would have preferred it to be like uh like hyrule warriors right the other problem that occurs with this map uh that i find kind of interesting is that while it carries forward the overall topography and character of breath of the wilds hyrule it entirely undermines that game's elegant quest design 
where uh, in Breath of the Wild, one of the great features, as we talked about in our Breath of the Wild episode, was that the map was not overly populated by icons. The player right. could go where they wanted to, when they wanted to, based upon what they were seeking or what they had had their attention drawn to by the geography. In this case, much like uh, the average Ubisoft game, you are constantly having your eye drawn by approximately 3 billion icons on the overworld map at any given time. And heaven help you if you have selected uh, a quest to track, like a resource gathering quest, because then half of the icons will also be blinking green, and you'll have a little uh, character icon, which we'll get into uh, shortly, uh, this particular character, who will appear next to one of the spaces on the overworld map and point at it repeatedly to tell you that you might want to go there. And half the time it's a good idea to go there and half the time it's not where you want to go. But the end result is you get the impression the overworld map is just screaming at you constantly. Yes, Yes. I totally agree with this. This is one of the biggest problems I had with the game is the the map is so cluttered. I'm like, I can't find anything in the maps. You know, the, the menus, they help, but it's just so cluttered. I'm like, what am I looking at? What do I want to do? It's overwhelming. I'll be honest with you. It is. So getting into the nitty gritty of the combat, uh, you've got your basic strong weak attack combos that I assume most people would be familiar with that have played an action game. Uh, But on top of that, there's kind of like a few special things. One, you have special attacks. These are powerful attacks that will either take out large swaths of enemies or do a lot of damage uh, to larger enemies. These are used by pressing the A button and expending a gauge that fills up when you hit enemies with normal attacks. Yeah, if you've played Hyrule Warriors, these function identically to how they did there. I do have to say, uh, they removed the Triforce pieces that would fill your gauge at times. Oh my goodness, you're right! I was wondering why these took so long to fill. Yes, it takes incredibly long now because you can't just destroy jars and and defeat enemies and you'll just get like a triforce piece that automatically fills your gauge for you yeah that was actually really frustrating um with a lot of these one-on-one battles because now you can't kill the thousands of enemies that you need to to get your gauge up yep you know you're just killing three enemies in the map and it's like well i can never use my special gauge thanks thanks yeah that's a good point yeah there's probably some food you can use later but We'll get to that. Right, right. Uh, the The other quirk about how this differs just a little bit from Hyrule Warriors is that uh, the special attack now, it kind of serves a dual function of what it did in Hyrule Warriors as well as what the uh, magic gauge did in mm-hmm. Hyrule Warriors, where when you use your special attack on uh, a boss enemy, it will expose their weak point gauge. Right. Which did not used to happen in Hyrule Warriors. Speaking of the weak point gauge, there's a weak point gauge. Um, Nice. This, yeah. Good segue, right? (laughs) So uh, this is kind of a visual indicator of like the armor that a larger enemy would have. And as you attack this enemy in certain exposed states, it will break away points. Uh, It's kind of shaped like a hexagon, but I think it's made up of eight wedges. Is that right? Yeah. And once all eight are gone, you can do a special attack on the enemy that's functionally similar to a special attack. It's usually flashy, kind of goes into a little cutscene, will do large AoE damage to any small enemies that are around it, and will take a big chunk of a larger enemy's health off. 
Yeah, it's functionally identical to the original Hyrule Warriors. Yep. Yeah, the only difference here is that you have a slightly higher level of control over when it activates because it activates right. with a button prompt. You get a little on-screen button prompt right. to right. Uh, activate the weak point gauge attack. Whereas in the original Hyrule Warriors, as soon as the weak point gauge was depleted, the attack would activate. Right, I remember that. I remember being annoyed at first and then I realized it was better because you could let your combo string exactly and then do the weak point attack yeah this is a slight improvement on the original hyrule warriors in my opinion yes it is one of the uh, big important ways that you expose this weak point gauge is through sheikah slate interactions Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the the kind of rune powers from breath of the wild return here uh, in each character's implementation of you know bombs stasis cryonis or magnesis kind of differ but they're used in sort of like a I don't know, a rock, paper, scissors, maybe? That's not a good analogy. <laughs> At any rate, enemies will use certain attacks, and when they engage in these attacks, the rune that counters it will appear above their head. Yeah. And if you activate that power uh, quickly enough, it will kind of interrupt the move that the enemy's trying to use and put them in an exposed state. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you all, but this is one of the one of the big mixed bags of the game for me in that I think it's neat that they integrated the Sheikah Slate. Mm-hmm. I think it's neat in theory that each character's implementation of the Sheikah runes is different. Mm-hmm. But in practice, with the sheer number of characters in this, even just the, the fact that each character's implementation of the Sheikah runes differed kind of threw me off from switching mm-hmm. to one character to the next. It was like I couldn't right. quite rely on my knowledge of how a character uh, would respond to an enemy attack. Right. And this is, again, changed from the original Hyrule Warriors in that, um, you know, they had the same items that you used, bombs, arrows, hookshot, etc. But each character used them exactly the same way. Yeah. So there was no, like, remembering, you know, how how does this character use the bombs? How does this character use Magnesis, you know? Right. So yeah, it, it it's it's interesting this this idea of like having everyone do it differently, but you know, I'm trying to remember like 16 different characters. Like, gosh, I I like these games, but even I can't remember all of it. So sometimes I yeah. would mess up the counter because it's like, oh wait, it's Zelda. She uses bombs as a little walkie bomb thing. <laughs> I was gonna mention Zelda too because her bombs <laughs> are my favorite. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my second favorite is Sidon, who uh, oh, yeah, uses yeah, yeah. like uses bombs like he he gets a little uh, like a little golf club and swings them. Uh, they pop up from oh. the ground and he swings them at enemies like golf balls. I thought it was like a baseball. I thought it was like baseball. Gosh, I could see that. And he that. hits it like a bat. Yeah, they do kind of pop up. Yeah, it's like he kind of swings it a little higher. You're right. Like they aren't on the ground. You're right. It's a little bit more like a bat than um, yeah than, than a golf. Uh, and he analogy. uses magnesis right. uh, like a fishing pole. Oh, I didn't realize that. That's cute. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> Which I think I think it speaks to the fact that like some of these are memorable enough that you remember them. Yeah. They're really fun and different. Right. But the trade-off right. is that if they're not memorable or exactly. if you happen to be required, heaven forbid, to use Hestu on the map, you know, you have no <laughs> recollection whatsoever of how he's going to respond. Right, exactly. My problem with the system was that the attacks that the uh, Sheikah Slate powers could interrupt were really punishing if you didn't interrupt them. Yeah. Not just in terms of the amount of damage they did, but also because, you know, you missed an opening. Right. So, and because they all share a cooldown, I 
never wanted to use them. I was always saving them to make sure I could deploy them exactly when I needed to. Mm -hmm. So it kind of felt like I had a toy I wasn't allowed to play with. That makes sense. One of the most interesting gameplay decisions that Koei Tecmo made in this was allowing the player to control and pilot the four divine beasts from Breath of the Wild. Two of these are pretty similar, Varuta and Varudanya. I didn't find them mechanically too interesting. They, um, you know, they, they just sort of mm. maraud through enemy swaths and you can attack using a sort of a standard attack or a, kind of a physical attack that attacks enemies close to you. Uh, a special attack that is more powerful but has to be charged up. Va Meadow, of course, is the flying divine beast. With this one, you actually get two perspectives. You get one above Va Meadow and one below Va Meadow, and you need to swap between them to attack enemies that are either in the air or on the ground. Va Naboris is interesting because rather than having sort of a direct projectile attack, it drops mortars on enemies. So you have kind of a targeting thing on the ground that you move around with the control stick to uh, target a group of enemies and then drop uh, an attack from the sky above them. Von Naboris's attacks also have uh, like a gauge that depletes when you use it. So if you attack too much in too short of a time, you have to wait for it to recharge. Oh, good point. Good point. I wanted to like these these sections, but for some reason they just kind of ended up feeling kind of empty and disappointing and i'm not really sure that i can pinpoint why i it's like it's like that power fantasy but yet i I didn't really like yeah i smush enemies yay big deal it didn't really feel that powerful yeah um i also found them incredibly especially like rudania i found it incredibly clunky to move around (laughs) you really do feel like you're controlling like a I don't know, like 5,000 ton mechanical creature, don't you? Also, a lot of times the special attack felt slower than not using it because once you engage yeah. it, you have to wait the whole duration for that beam to end and everything on your screen is dead well before the beam finishes firing. Yeah, yeah it is. So you spend a lot of time waiting for that to stop so you can start moving again. Yeah, I would forget to use it, honestly. Yeah, same. Um, so this game, yeah, it, it hews so closely to Breath of the Wild. That, um, you know, as we talked about, some of the levels are, like, pulled exactly from the game. The, you know, that's pulled from the maps, from yep. the areas. Like you say, you fight in Gerudo Desert. Yeah, like, like I've never done Town. a one-to-one, but, like, I would swear it's, that some of these are one-to-one with areas in Breath it of the is, Wild. It is. It's pretty dang close, I think. Yeah. Um, like, when you're fighting, like, in Gerudo Town, it's like, yeah, that's Gerudo Town. It's like, Yeah, the street layout. It's exactly Gerudo exactly. Town, isn't it? Yep. Which is really cool, but I have some huge problems with it in terms of, like, when you're, it's as a battle arena, it's really bad, because some of the, I mean, Breath of the Wild, it's, 
I mean, it's more like an actual place, whereas Hyrule Warriors, you know, the, the arenas or stages tend to be really big. Yeah. And so they're trying to cram these arenas into these tiny little areas that are, you know, are areas that people live in. And I swear to God, I, I would so often I would run into the wall uh-huh. and then the camera would get wonky on me and I can't see a gosh darn thing of what I'm doing. I, I, I constantly ran into that problem and I really have to say, although it's gorgeous and I liked being able to see these, some of these areas that we didn't get to see. Yeah. Uh, rendered. Yeah, it's pretty cool to see the the populated towns of yeah, yeah, 100 yeah, yeah. years ago Hyrule. Is yeah, really nice. I really appreciated that. But also, I would run into the walls all the time. The arenas are much, much too small for fighting. I didn't die in this game a lot outside of special challenge levels, like where you get taken down in one hit or that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. generally, when I died to a boss in this, it was in a cramped interior space Mm-hmm. that made sense for Breath of the Wild, especially yes. the Yiga areas, the, the Yiga clan. Oh, gosh, yes. They made that sense for Breath of so the Wild. Tiny. They made no sense for a game no. that is populated with hundreds of enemies where no. you're, you're in constant motion in combat. They simply do not work with this no, game design. No, it does design. not work at all. For those of us who played Hyrule Warriors, we know, you know what a decent arena looks like. Yeah. And this is this is this is bad yeah this is is one of those places where there's a tension between uh the the two sides of this game's Mm -hmm. design ethos right Mm -hmm. like it needs to be a warrior's game and it needs to reflect breath of the wild right and in trying to marry the two it, it the the developers again made a really bold attempt to stay true to the identity of breath of the wild but that is in tension with the design of a warrior's game right one of the other interesting problems that crops up, uh, especially but not exclusively with the interior levels, is verticality. Oh, yeah. Again, it's cool how faithful to Breath of the Wild it is. It's mm-hmm. cool how much it bucks the trend of warrior games, in that warrior games are, as a rule, entirely flat. And one of the problems right. that occurs in this game is that the uh, map system that tells you where to go is not equipped to deal with vertical spaces. Oh yeah, yeah. Because I mean, on the on the, when you look at the map in the menu, some of these corridors are so narrow. Yeah, it's like I can't actually tell which path I'm supposed to take. Yeah, it's an interesting choice that gets at the cosmetic level design of Breath of the Wild, in that that's a famously vertical game. But this doesn't have any kind of climbing mechanics or anything, or any reason yes. for the stages to be vertical. So really, right. it just clutters up and prevents easy progress. Yeah. I uh, noticed I yeah. couldn't order my people <laughs> right. um, on different levels either. Yep. If it was a different level, the, the game would just go bloop. I found it pretty inconsistent. Like, half the time I could, and half the time I couldn't. And sometimes they would get confused with the pathfinding, even if Mm -hmm. I could, to where they Mm -hmm. wouldn't ever quite get there. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that too. They have a hard time, like, jumping off of uh, cliffs to get to lower areas. They're kind of uncomfortable doing it, the AI is. (laughs) Speaking of that, though, um, just real quick, uh, an intensely underbaked mechanic in this game uh, because I'm not sure we'll get to talk about it anywhere else, is the paraglider. Okay, yeah. The paraglider is in this from Breath of the Wild. And so far as I can tell, there is no reason to ever deploy it. Mm-mm. 
it strictly mm -hmm. gets in the way of combos because some combos yep. launch your character into the air and if you hit the wrong button your character will uh whip out the paraglider and start flying around so the the boss who you're fighting might be stunned and with a weak point gauge exposed on the ground but you're still stuck flying around above them and need to land in order to attack them you can attack while in the air. You can. I just found that the attacks okay. only connected about half the time. Like they, oh, okay. like my attacks okay. don't always connect when I'm flying because presumably they they go over the enemy's head. Yeah, sometimes they don't. It's you're right. Just a, a frankly baffling design choice. Like this is one of the things that really suggests a rush development process to me, because I can see the reason for having the paraglider in the game. It is arguably the key verb. Besides climbing, of Breath of the Wild. Right. And since climbing plainly can't be accommodated in a Warriors game, the paraglider is kind of a cool compromise to make this feel kinetically more like Breath of the Wild. It just serves no purpose. You you don't move faster with it. You can't get to anywhere mm -mm. extra with it. There's no reason nope. whatsoever to ever use it. Mm -mm. It's very niche. Yeah. I... I leaned on Rivali's flying uh, combos to do the challenges that require you to not get hit because, <laughs> and maybe this is evidence toward the fact that that uh, specific mechanic was rushed. Mm -hmm. A lot of enemies in those challenges just don't really have a way to attack Rivali when he's flying. Mm -hmm. So you just kind of fly around hitting everything without much retaliation. Interesting. Nice. And that is, I would say that um, that in some ways supports the point that paragliding doesn't really work. Because uh, I, too, loved Rivali's flying mechanic. Whenever I was playing as Rivali, mm -hmm. gosh, I was flying at least half the time. And it made sense because there are a bunch of attacks that are tailored to Rivali attacking enemies on the ground while flying uh, that are pretty interesting. But the paraglider is... Uh, Shucks, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it, it limits your attack capabilities as most characters as opposed to expanding them like flying yeah. does for Rivali. I think it does. Interesting choice. I can see why they made it, but like so many of the choices in this game, it's cool in theory and a bit of a mess in practice. Up next, we have characters and their wacky combo moves. Uh, so, Jasmine, did you want to kick us off here with Link? Sure. Yeah, Link is your typical uh, cheese character. Um, in this game, he has three weapons, mm -hmm. three types of weapons. He's got lots of weapons, but three types. Uh, One-handed, two-handed, and spears. Yeah. His special ZR move is in one-handed mode. It's to uh, shoot arrows. Which I found very limited use for, unfortunately. It's pretty much only useful against Hinoxes, I think. That's basically what I found, yeah. yeah. I only used it to shoot the Hinox's eyes. Yep. So, or one eye, I guess. Yeah. Um, I didn't use the two-handed sword or the spear very much. Um, but I do remember he does a strong attack in two-handed mode. 
that will take off some of his health. Uh, so you want to hit X to eat food really quick to get his uh, health back. Yeah, it's very cute. Link just uh, jams a bunch of food in his mouth, which I'm happy yeah. that they replicated that from uh, <laughs> yes. Breath of the Wild because it, it was consistently one of my favorite things in Breath of the Wild, which was watching Link eat. Yes, he is a glutton. Yeah. Yeah, the two-handed sword mode, Link was one of the uh, the characters I leaned on because the two-handed sword is kind of mechanically interesting because you've got your normal combos and the way the special works for that is that if you use ZR instead of the normal strong attack button, it will swap in a stronger version of that same attack mm -hmm. at the cost of reducing your health. Uh, and the way the health loss works with those moves is it doesn't just take the heart off completely, it kind of puts it into a temporary loss state, and then eating restores all the hearts that have been temporarily lost. Okay. But if you get hit by an enemy before you eat, you do actually lose all those hearts. So it's oh. a real... Okay. Yeah, it's a real I thought he always recovered, food, recovered health with the food. I, I didn't even notice that you could lose them permanently. Yep. So it's a balancing act of trying to squeeze in as much damage as you're comfortable doing uh, before eating. Because if you try to like push it just one more hit and then a boss clips you, you lose all that health. Interesting. That's very Bloodborne, weirdly enough. Uh, FromSoft's Bloodborne has a functionally identical mechanic where uh, an enemy will reduce your health, but if you counterattack the enemy within a short enough period of time before you've lost additional health, you gain that health or a portion of it back. Uh, it's, it's very odd to see Bloodborne over here in Hyrule Warriors. Hmm. Zelda, on the other hand, is a lot less versatile in this, and that's unfortunate because Zelda was a real MVP in the original Hyrule Warriors. Yeah. Here, her primary attack is, uh, again, cosmetically and theoretically pretty interesting because her, her primary weapon is the Sheikah Slate itself. So while all characters have access to the Sheikah Slate for dedicated counterattacks or uh, special attacks, Zelda uses it constantly. One of her combo moves here is uh, <laughs> among my favorite animations in the game. <laughs> she summons a minecart and hurls herself in the minecart forward into enemies to do combo damage, which is really fun. Mm -hmm. Her second weapon, and, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, folks, Link and Zelda are the only characters in this who have two or more distinct weapon types. Yeah. Generally, characters just have one weapon type. But Zelda gets a second one about two-thirds of the way through the game, the Bow of Light. So uh, rather than using the Sheikah Slate, Zelda attacks enemies kind of with magic, light magic, during her normal mm -hmm. combos. And then uh, with a tap to the ZR button enters this, uh, I think it's called the Luminescent State, mm -hmm. where her special attack gauge drains, but she gains access to like a constant combo attack of firing arrows or making light explosions happen. I could never find a way to make that equipment loadout work so i i pretty much eschewed it entirely once i got it that was the exact opposite i found the bow of light to be extremely powerful really? zelda went from like warming the bench to always being in my uh loadout for a mission after i got that bow of light oh how about that like mechanically it's not as interesting as like something like link's two-handed sword but just damage wise i felt like it was very powerful hmm. let's see did you want to talk about impa jasmine oh sure I loved Impa. She was she was my second most used character. Um, her special ability is to 
um, I don't know, she like marks the enemies with the symbol and then you absorb the symbol and she'll create two clones of herself mm-hmm. up to six clones, I think. And, yeah. um, and you can basically do just attack with her and her clones. And um, I don't know, it, it looks really badass. It does. Um, she's really fun to play. She has lots of funny moves. Um, late in the game, you get this move where she'll like drop a frog on enemies and like hop around <laughs> on it attacking. And it's one of my favorites. I think if you have, I know it's great. I think if you have clones, she'll um, the clones will ride a frog too. Oh, it's cool! It's really crazy. Yeah, I have to admit it did take me a little bit to learn how to put the symbol on the enemies and then absorb it. I thought that was really awkward at first. The game's not really great at explaining how that works. The targeting on it's a little finicky. Yeah, because um, if you if there's a like an elite enemy nearby, you can hit R3 to target it. But if you're just fighting the rank and file, mm-hmm. there's no real way to target a specific enemy. You're kind right. of at the game's mercy. So if you hit uh, ZR to put a symbol on one, and then you do your strong attack combo to absorb that symbol, sometimes the game will just keep making Impa target something other than what you put the symbol yes, on. Yes, I noticed mm-hmm. that. You're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that can be frustrating. Mm-hmm. Did any of us use the Great Fairies much? I used them a little bit. Yeah. Not a, not a ton. I tried. Same. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I thought their premise sounded cool, but I think it, it's almost just like a worse version of King Rome. Hmm. Yeah, they're pretty goofy. Yeah, I, I didn't really use these folks either. I like them as a as a joke character. I'm all for joke characters in Warriors right. games, but right. they were not that fun to use. No, not really. We should specify their kind of special shtick is that when you hit the right trigger, you swap between uh, which great fairy you're controlling, mm-hmm. and each one has kind of a different move set. So I think the idea is to kind of uh, either set up cool combos by swapping fairies mid combo, or to sort of adapt to specific situations based on which fairy you're controlling. But it felt real clunky. I thought they were kind of weak. And also their hitbox is humongous. Yeah. So it's yeah, sort it of is. hard to not take a lot of damage. Yeah, yeah. In a similar category was Hestu. Oof. Yeah, who certainly listeners who heard our, our Breath of the Wild episode know my intense affection for Hestu. Um, why there isn't a Hestu amiibo yet, I will never understand. Yeah. But Hestu is not a lot of fun to play as here. He creates a lot of frame rate problems because uh, his right trigger summons little Korok followers, uh, which are cute, right. and increase his power, but increase the power consumption of the switch. So, um, <laughs> you know, he ends up kind of unpleasant to play as and, and just feels a little floaty. Like you just you never feel like you're quite doing yeah. enough damage as Hestu, in my opinion. Yeah, I feel like I, I felt like I was never in the right place. Mm-hmm. Like I would think I was in range, but I never was. Yeah, I would miss the enemies all the time. He's fighting with maracas. What more do you want? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, the maracas sound effects only go so far. Yeah, Hestu has too much whimsy and not enough bloodlust. <laughs> Get off the battlefield, man. Yeah, <laughs> it was a cute idea, but I think he wasn't that well implemented, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, Urbosa was one of my favorites. Jasmine, did you use her much? Yeah, Urbosa, her special skill um, is lightning. And if you push the ZR button, she'll charge up her lightning gauge. And so when you do a strong attack, um, she'll unleash that lightning on the enemies. Yeah. Um, I didn't really use her attacks without the lightning, so I have no idea what they do without. 
Um, sometimes when you're attacking, you can replenish the gauge quickly by pushing ZR at the right time. I was never really quite sure what the right timing on that was, but um, generally, yeah, I, I liked her a lot. Um, she's, she's just really great. Um, her, her special attack, I just, I just loved her special attack that, you know, it was, it was like the Zelda, like, um, like the Breath of the Wild, um, where she'd snap her fingers and the lightning would just pour out onto the field. And so it's like, cool. oh yeah, I just, oh, that was a nice callback. I really appreciated that. Yeah. Uh, a number of the characters in this suffer from feeling a little underpowered as you're uh, taking mm-hmm. out enemies. I think this may be another function of limited development resources, that mm-hmm. the the feedback is a little light. Urbosa yeah. is an exception to that. Urbosa consistently feels powerful when you use her, which I really like. Mm-hmm. Right. Spencer, did you use Daruk at all? I used Daruk a little bit. Yeah. I did not like him so i kind of stopped using him yeah. as soon as i felt like i had a baseline knowledge to talk about mm-hmm. him yeah I'm, I'm about with you there yeah he uses two-handed swords and his shtick is that his attacks are kind of slow but powerful mm-hmm. but they didn't feel appreciably more powerful than whatever the other character brought to the table so mm-hmm. he just felt slow <laughs> right yeah exactly and his, yeah and his special is that uh certain strong attack combos will kind of leave rocks deposited on the battlefield Mm -hmm. and then he can press zr to detonate those rocks and do some kind of aoe damage after the fact yeah Yeah. (laughs) by by the nature of this game every character has a lot of combos that hit in really wide arcs so doing damage in an aoe is not special Mm -hmm. and it didn't feel stronger than anything else so he was just uh mechanically a real dud which is a bummer because daruk is a character is an awful lot of fun yeah Rivali is a lot of fun though um speaking of the champions um he wields a bow which feels like it shouldn't work in this milieu uh he shoot you want to be carving a path through enemies not precisely picking them off one by one when there are 200 of them in front of you <laughs> and yet Rivali uh is a lot of fun Partially because his bow functions the same as any melee weapon. Uh, you know, it's it's a, it's a function of, of the fact that, uh, you know, there's only so much programming that can differentiate combos in this. But also his, uh, his right trigger functionality is that he jumps into the air and starts flying. And you can then right. proceed to fly around the battlefield at a quicker speed, evade enemy attacks, and uh, fire volleys of arrows at them, as well as bomb arrows which never stops being fun yeah that's about the feel i got for him he's a real jerk but you know as opposed to uh breath of the wild where um his primary action was to die uh in this he actually (laughs) earns his arrogance by being a really compelling fighter So yeah, Mifa, her special ability is like to hit when she hits, when you hit ZR is uh, she creates these fountains and uh, you can jump into them um, and I I guess it heals. I never noticed this a whole lot, but that's apparently what happens. Um, Mostly I just liked her for her attacks. I thought they were great. Um, Her spear is really amazing. Um, I like that she can teleport across the field a little bit with that jumping into the whirlpools and stuff 
Um, she did remind me a lot of, uh, let's see, what was it? Ruto yep. from the original Hyrule Warriors. I feel like they stole some of her moves and gave them to Mifa. I actually liked Mifa as kind of a, a fix for Ruto. I never really used Ruto in the original Hyrule Warriors, but I used Mifa mm. quite a bit here because I feel like she got Ruto's shtick right. Yeah, I liked Mifa a lot. Um, like you said, I mostly used her for hard hitting rather than healing. I didn't really care much about that. No, I think the healing, I, I might be wrong about this, but I think the healing is actually primarily for NPCs. I think Mifa heals NPCs who you're you're fighting with. Okay. Mifa's special attack does heal the player, but her non-special attacks heal NPCs. Oh, wow. Okay. And by special, I mean the one that consumes the special gauge, not the right. ZR special move. Yeah, the, the okay. capital S as opposed to the lowercase s special. <laughs> yeah. Because the ability to self-heal and just because her moveset was fun, I ended up using Mifa a lot. Yeah. And I, th- I think she's probably a lot more useful on harder difficulties. Because I sort of oscillated between normal and hard, depending on how spicy I felt that day. You played this game yeah, on um, hard mode? Uh, it's not worth it. Sometimes. I switched this thing to easy. <laughs> I just played on normal. <laughs> I thought if you got bonuses, I would play on hard mode, but you don't get anything extra. It's worthless. Well, the reason why I did it was when I was trying to farm, you get the first-time quest rewards for each difficulty you beat a quest on. Oh. Oh, you do? I think so. I thought so. <laughs> you know, that would make sense. That's how Hyrule Warriors works, where you get you get unique quest rewards the first time you beat a stage using any given difficulty. So that, that stands to reason that it would be the case here. I'll have to give that a whirl. As far as characters, uh, one of the most interesting twists halfway through this game is that the, uh, you know, the representatives of each race of Hyrule from the present in Breath of the Wild travels into the past to aid during the events of the Great Calamity. Uh, So these are, of course, Teba, Riju, Yonobo, and Sidon. Teba, I thought, was kind of an interesting riff on Rivali because Mm -hmm. the two are cosmetically pretty similar. But Teba almost uses his bow like a machine gun. Yeah. He's got like this really wide range of attack uh, that makes him pretty compelling to play as. Yeah, I honestly, I thought when I first played Teba, I'm like, oh, this is how Rivali should have felt. Hmm. To be honest. It, it just, I, th- I thought Rivali was kind of slow for what, for what he was. And Teba was faster. He was able to, you know, do his moves faster. Yeah. He, he hit more enemies. I, I I don't know. I just really, I really liked Teba a lot more than Rivali. And maybe it's because he didn't have the baggage. Hey, I mean, that's what a century of evolution will get you, right? You know? Yeah. Teba is Rivali plus. So the next descendant that you play as is Riju. 
And she's accompanied by her uh, sand seal, Patricia. And they basically join forces together on the battlefield. And um, I don't remember exactly a whole lot of her moves because I didn't use her a ton. But um, she uses lightning moves like Urbosa. Mm -hmm. And if you push the ZR button, uh, Patricia will rage across the battlefield. It's like hitting the dash button in Breath of the Wild as mm -hmm. a sand when you're riding on a sand seal. I, I don't know. I thought she was a lot of fun. I'm not sure how powerful she was, but she's very cute. Yeah, she's kind of alongside Teba as a character that I want to explore more if I go back to this mm -hmm. game, because uh, a lot of the characters in this feel a little slow as far as battlefield movement go. And mm -hmm. Riju is the complete opposite. Uh, using yeah. Patricia, she skyrockets across the battlefield so quickly that it can be hard to control where she's headed. Yeah, true. Spencer, did you play as Yonobo at all? A little bit. Uh, Yonobo's... Uh, I'm hesitant to say, like, objectively that he's just a terrible character, <laughs> but I could never figure out how to make him not terrible. Um, his, yeah. his thing is that when you press ZR, he'll eat rock roast. Right. And then when you eat the rock roast, you'll get kind of an aura that indicates which strong attack in the combo will be powered up the next time you use mm -hmm. it. And... You can repeatedly press ZR to kind of cycle through the auras um, to pick which attack you want to power up. Yeah. I could not figure out for the life of me if I was supposed to just be pressing ZR and then adapting my combos to kind of fit which aura I got, or if I was supposed to be cycling through auras to power up the specific move I wanted to be using. But that took enough yeah. time that the like damage increase I got from powering up those moves never really felt worth the time it took to stop and eat the rock roast. Hmm. It was just yeah. really kind of finicky, involved, slow, and clunky mm -hmm. for not a lot of return. Yeah. Like, I never felt, you know, no matter how I tried to engage with that mechanic, I never felt like I was killing things faster. Nope. Yeah, Yunobo really reminds me of uh, Lana from the original game. Oh, and interesting. And her summoning gate. So you hit a button. And she does her little dance move and one of the bosses pops out and you then have to use the combo that uses that boss to get an increase in that boss power attack. Right. Um, so it really reminded me a lot of that. I don't know how you're supposed to play Yunobo in this game, but I played it. I played him when I did play him a lot like I played Lana, which was to see what popped out and try to do the corresponding combo string. Mm hmm. But otherwise, I kind of feel like Spencer, it was slow, and I'm not sure it was worth it and did that much more damage. I don't want to sell Warriors games short, but Yonobo is way, way too technical a character for a game that <laughs> primarily involves you mashing a single button until hundreds of enemies die. Yeah, true. Jasmine, why don't you give us your opinion on Sidon first here? Okay, okay. Uh, so yeah, Sidon, he... <laughs> The description in the game says that when he hits the ZR button, he employs his boundless enthusiasm Delightful. to right to enhance his uh, strong attack string. And um, yeah, if you just hit it without doing an attack string, it's his typical like shiny <laughs> pose. You know, it's like sparkling mouth smile pose that he does in Breath of the Wild, which is just charming. Mm -hmm. I loved it to death. 
And um, yeah, it just adds like a, an extra attack or extra bonus to his attack string. Um, which I, I loved. I thought that was hilarious. They often manifest as like a magical shark that appears on the battlefield and attacks enemies yeah, uh, aiding yeah. Sidon. It's it's really kind of... Yeah, I noticed that. It's not like visually spectacular, but it's pretty no. fun. But it's fun. You can tell because the game slows down to like bullet time for like just a <laughs> second or two. And, and you, re- you recognize that, oh yeah, I did that extra damage. Right. right? Yeah. Whether intentionally or because there's so many particle effects on screen, the game <laughs> right. slows down. One, one, or, one of the two, but it certainly highlights it. <laughs> for sure. I could, yeah, I could never decide sometimes. Like, I guess, I hope I pulled it off. Let's, <laughs> let's say that I did. I totally did. Yeah. <laughs> Spencer, it sounded like you had some fighting words on Sidon. Well, as a character, I love him, and I—I I mean, I, I got a an honest to goodness smile out of me when I saw that just pressing ZR outside of a combo makes him do like the smile <laughs> and the thumbs up kind of pose. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but and maybe this is a function of the fact that I had to play this in handheld for ninety five percent of my playthrough, Uh-oh. so parsing information on the screen was a little difficult. Maybe on a TV it wouldn't be this way, mm. but the little blue indicator. That Ugh. tells you when you're supposed to hit ZR to yeah. get the enhanced combo off. Mm-hmm. Blended in with like the blue water effects of his attack oh, yeah. so well that I could not time it. Yeah, I think it's interesting. And I don't know what is different about the tells on this or how they work. But it sounds like, Spencer, you were much more successful at implementing Impa's right trigger attack, uh, which I struggled with, whereas uh, Sidon's came pretty naturally to me, so it's it's very peculiar. Hmm. Uh, let's move on to um, some of the more surprising late-game characters. Uh, the first of these is Master Koga, oh, yeah. uh, which we'll, we'll get into kind of the plot reasons for this uh, in, in a few moments, but Master Koga joins the team about maybe 80%, 85% of the way through the game. Um, he is deeply unpleasant to play as, in my opinion. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, like I tried him out a couple of times. His animations, as you'd expect, are incredible. Uh-huh. Um, he's like, he's a real goofball. He has lots of weird, arrogant things to say. And he gets <laughs> carried by his troops who will yep. like hurl him at enemies to do like kick attacks and stuff. He's a lot of fun to look at and not even a little bit of fun to play as. Yeah, he was pretty rough. I felt like he was a more complicated version of um, Zant from the original. Ooh, good connection. Yeah. I actually kind of liked Koga. Oh, oh okay. really? Okay. Cool. I The threshold that you could get to before triggering the tantrum was really generous. So you didn't have to fuss with it too much. I never saw the tantrum. Um, and just to get in the specifics of how it works, when you use his strong attacks, it builds up a tantrum meter. If it gets too high, you know, presumably he goes into some kind of animation that makes him ineffectual for a while. But when it gets high enough, you can just empty it into a really strong beam attack that will wipe out pretty much anything in front of your character on the screen. Uh, Additionally, you can eat some bananas to kind of placate him. This doesn't empty the meter, but it puts it into kind of a passive state that uh, stops him from going to the tantrum if it gets too full. Yeah, okay. Uh, so King Rome is the last character that is unlocked as a function of doing the story missions. So Rome's special ability is that he can swap between uh, King Mode and Hermit Mode. In King Mode, he uses a great sword and has kind of slow uh, but high damaging attacks. And in Hermit Mode, he uses an axe that is faster and lower damage. 
Hmm. And you can, if you time the transition between the two right after a uh, strong attack, he will do a kind of second follow-up attack in the transition uh, that does more damage. Mm -hmm. So this, to me, seemed like a more Elga implementation, both of the Great Fairies and of Sidon, because you can transition, you can switch movesets to whatever the situation demands, and timing that change after your strong attacks also gives you a damage boost similar to how Sidon does. Yeah, and it puts a straight-up button prompt up on the screen, uh, I assume as long as you haven't changed anything in the menu, uh, to tell you, click ZR to change modes. Right. Yeah, um, and I found him to be very effective. I don't. I didn't go into the real nitty-gritty of how the damage breakdowns are on this, but even though I was playing with the default weapon of his which had like a, a damage value of 50 i felt like it was doing significantly more damage than my other characters that had significantly better weapons equipped the next uh unlockable character is monk mazkoshia and uh his gimmick i guess is to kind of like impa um it's not really absorb symbols but mm -hmm. he if you fill up your symbol gauge um, you can get big by hitting ZR and um, wail on the enemies a bit. <laughs> I guess one of his things is to summon... Um, gosh, I don't know what they are. They're things from the shrines and stuff. Hammers, the spiky balls, uh, shrine itself, uh, to hit enemies, I think, with this a strong combo attack string. And then you destroy those to um, make his symbol meter fill up i guess mm -hmm. the thing that felt weird about him to me and made him feel unfinished his gauge is pretty large so you can absorb a lot of uh kind of like special use right but whenever i hit zr all he does is turn big and then kind of swing a hammer and then switch back yeah. it felt like you should have been able to do some kind of massive mode combo yeah. or integrate that into your other combos in a way that varied up what move that did but yeah. despite my best efforts to play around with it, I could not get that move to change at all. No matter how I tried to do it, ZR was just turn big, big hammer swing, go back to normal. Which felt so weirdly out of place and underutilized that I have to assume there was grander plans for this that just never got implemented. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I That's why I didn't even really mention his special, which is getting large, because it, it was pretty much... a. It was nothing. It didn't. It wasn't special, so I, I didn't even really remember it. So next up is the story of Age of Calamity, and uh, much like Hyrule Warriors before it, it has a bit more of uh, a linear detailed story than some traditional Legend of Zelda games do, but it's ultimately still pretty simplistic. So the game opens in Breath of the Wild's present, 
where uh, a miniature guardian awakens. We'll later come to know this guardian by the name of Terrico and travels back in time a hundred years through a portal to the era in which Zelda is beginning her quest to try to prevent the rise of Calamity Ganon. So we get to meet Link. He is just, a, well, really the only visually distinct soldier who's helping to defend Hyrule Castle from the arrival of Ganon's troops out in Hyrule Field. In Chapter 2, we meet King Rome. Uh, who is at this point kind of at the height of his power as uh, the monarch of Hyrule, sending Link, Zelda, and Imba around Hyrule to find pilots for the Divine Beasts as another method of safeguarding Hyrule and Hyrule Castle from the ascent of Ganon and his forces. Once the champions have assembled, we get to meet, who else? The Yiga clan, a banana-loving ninja of uh, Breath of the Wild, who attack the party while it's in transit under the orders of a mysterious evil figure, uh, who we will find is kind of the central antagonist of this game. His name is Aster, and he has his own small corrupted guardian that looks a lot like Terrico, but with uh, the sort of Ganon-like malice energy about it. Uh, so they go to the Lost Woods, uh, they find Hestu. On their way through, they find their way blocked by malice, and then they find in the far reaches of Lost Woods that there's uh, these hollows, which are dark versions of the champions mm -hmm. uh, that they have to destroy in order to get rid of the malice. So the, the party does that as Link and Zelda uh, make their way to the Master Sword. They find aforementioned evil guy, <laughs> Aster. He's waiting for them maliciously, etc., etc., <laughs> as bad guys do. Right, yeah. Just, just hanging out around yeah. the forest for a while. He summons the hollows again and Link fights them and tragically Link's sword breaks. But then he's, you know, at the last minute when the hollows are about to kill Zelda, he's able to pull out the master sword and defeat the hollows and Aster and they are saved. And there's a cut scene where Zelda starts feeling bad about Link being able to, you know, um, pull out the master sword yeah. and achieve his heroic status, but she's unable to use her seeming power. Yeah, this reprises quite a few of the themes of Breath of the Wild yes, uh, totally that we, we kind of became familiar with through Zelda's diary there, as well as the flashbacks in Breath of the Wild. Uh, but it's nice to see them explicated in a little bit more depth here. It's nice to see Zelda experiencing that sort of imposter syndrome and Link kind mm -hmm. of stumbling his way from one victory to the next while she's really struggling. So in the next chapter, uh, you know, Pura's doing her research and she discovers that there are other Sheikah Towers which link to a control system in Hyrule Castle. And when she activates it, uh, she fi they find that Akala Citadel is under attack by the Yiga. So the party goes there and um, uh, they fight the Yiga and Suga again, again. Yeah. More records are discovered on the miniature guardian, Terrico. Uh, indicating that Calamity Ganon will return on seven Zelda's 17th birthday. Uh, there's a cutscene where Zelda is at the Spring of Courage to train, and unfortunately they're attacked by monsters. Um, of course you win, and they escape, and Imba is like acts like the really good friend here and encourages Zelda that, you know, she can she can awaken her sealing power, etc. In Chapter 5, the Calamity finally awakens, uh, and it's 
this is this is the the sort of critical inflection point that we're familiar with from the history depicted in Breath of the Wild. There's a real note of terror as this chapter starts with the heroes in Hyrule Castle witnessing all of the guardians turn against them. King Rome appears to make a kind of peace with Zelda and sacrifice himself for them to escape. Uh, Impa, Zelda, and Link, of course. So uh, once they've escaped from the castle, they realize that the the next big threat is to the champions, who are all uh, with the divine beasts, which have, of course, also been uh, assaulted and taken over by Calamity Ganon. So the party heads to the divine beasts in um, sort of a, a combination mission. The champions who you go to save are suddenly joined through portals from the future by their descendants from Breath of the Wild's present. Once these missions are completed, we find out that Aster has been harvesting souls to resurrect those uh, Blight Ganons, and so he ends up sacrificing a ton of Yiga to do so, uh, which horrifies Koga and Suga, who, while bad guys, are not quite that bad. You know, they're, they're, they're not quite heartless, I guess, it's a little silly because what did they think yeah. would happen? You know, like what did they think would happen when Calamity Ganon came back? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's like a Cthulhu cult thing. The idea is if they're devout worshippers of Ganon, maybe they won't get killed by all of it. So the fact that they're being sacrificed kind of uh, goes against their goals. <laughs> yeah, I gotcha. Okay. The old, like, I didn't expect the leopard face-eating party would eat my face. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I love that analogy, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> uh, so you know, it's 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 one maybe it's one of those scenarios, but whatever the case may be, uh, Suga sacrifices himself to save Koga from Aster, uh, as Aster has summoned a, a Dark Link, one of those Hollows, to attack, and uh, Koga in turn heads off and joins Zelda in her quest to save Hyrule. Uh, so chapter six. Uh, the main characters learn that kind of the remnants of Rome's army have kind of been uh, chased back to Akala yeah. Citadel, uh, where they're kind of being besieged. Uh, so Link and the Guardians move there to try to, or not the Guardians, the Divine Beasts come to try to take out the enemies and Guardians and rescue uh, the remnants of Hylia's army. Uh, eventually you need to go rescue Pura as well. Uh, this involves going around and securing objectives that let you shoot a cannon. Uh, these cannons will take out a bunch of guardians and collapse a bridge. Uh, you drop down from that bridge, fight some guardians, and you run into Aster, who resummons all the Blight mm-hmm. Ganons. In the fight with the Blight Ganons, Link starts to get kind of overpowered, and that is when Zelda's ceiling powers finally awaken. Seeing Link, Link's imminent demise uh, lets her produce the, the Light Bow, uh, and that's what unlocks that moveset yeah. for her and the ability to start getting the bow-type weapons. Uh, and in this cutscene, she completely takes out the Blight Ganons and the, the Rampaging Guardians. I thought this was a really interesting moment in the plot. It's almost like a retelling of Zelda awakening her powers because this does not occur how it did in the timeline that led to Breath of the Wild. Right. I just, I find that kind of interesting from a storytelling perspective that it's like there were different routes for Zelda to get to where she ended up. It was not that Mm -hmm. one specific set of events needed to take place. It was that any number of events could have taken place, but she was like on the path to recover her powers regardless. Mm -hmm. 
I think it's telling how much of a jerk Zelda's dad is that uh, seeing him die didn't awaken her powers, but seeing Link in danger did. <laughs> oh my goodness, True. you're right. That's too funny. <laughs> Good point. So in the final chapter of the game, um, there's news apparently that Hylian forces are fighting on the Great Plateau, so... Uh, Pura realizes that they can use Sheikah tech to teleport there, so they teleport the party there. Uh, so this is actually our first glimpse at the Great Plateau, un, un, relatively undamaged. Yeah. So while they're there, uh, as the battle's going on, some rubble is wa- blocking the way to where most of the fighting is. Uh, so they decide to use the Resurrection Shrine as a teleport to get around it. And uh, so you teleport there and you run out the cave exactly like you do in Breath of the Wild. So it's like a direct callback. So the party breaks through to the the fighting and they discover, oh, King Room's actually alive. Uh, You see uh, from a past cutscene, he demanded this piece of technology that Zelda had. Uh, He took it from her and it magically turned out that it, it was a shield and he was able to, you know, reflect the the beams back at the guardians and save everyone. So he didn't die and they reconcile and I guess everything's okay now. Yeah, this is rough. Uh, So finally uh, we see all the races band together on Hyrule field to retake the castle, which is surrounded by calamity Ganon at this point. Uh, There's several walls of malice that are protecting the castle. uh, So the party has to defeat monsters to dispel those walls. Only tragically to have the blood moon rise and resurrect everything and you get to do it all again. Because if, if you liked it the first time, you're going to like it the second time. Yeah, this is mechanically a drag, but I thought was a really cool, yeah. like, fun story twist because the blood moon yeah. hadn't appeared yet during the game. Right. It was cool, but yeah, mechanically it was like, oh, dang yeah. it. Uh, so finally we enter the castle. The party splits up to... F- fight their way through Blight Ganons again, because apparently a couple times wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. We encounter like Aster and the evil guardian and the little evil, the little guardian turns into the harbinger Ganon. Yeah. And you got to fight him for a bit. Yeah. For like a minute. It's really quick. Yeah. It was like, okay. Then after it's defeat, I'm not quite sure exactly what happened here, but. Aster gets corrupted by some malice and I don't know Harbinger Ganon has something to do with it and he kind of becomes Calamity Ganon um and during this the Terrico the little baby guardian uh also gets corrupted and you have to fight him and it's very sad that you this. have to defeat him Terrico is my favorite character in this game and I just I hated having to wail on it like game why you gotta be so mean yeah, this is really cruel for, like, a whimsical beat-em-up. Yeah, it is. And as it's dying, it plays Zelda's lullaby. Ugh. And Zelda finally remembers when she was a child, she built little Terrico. The The way that the cutscene plays out shows her building it, showing it to her mother... Then a scene shortly after her mother has died where she's talking to Terrico and saying, you won't leave me too like my mom. Right. And then it That's cuts right. to King Rome taking Terrico away from her and putting it away in a closet hidden away where she'll never find it again. 
Right. It is a heartbreaking cutscene. Yeah. So just more confirmation that King Rome is a horrible father. <laughs> yeah. Just like, you know, Breath of the Wild alluded to and this game basically confirms. Yeah. So yeah, that that whole reconciliation earlier, it, it it's really jarring. Um when juxtaposed with this scene, it's like, I, I don't know how she forgives him. I'll be mm-hmm. honest with you. As he's basically denied everything about her life. And then, oh, wait, no, it's okay now, I guess. Because your technology saved me. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That, that last part of that cutscene, Zelda still reads as a very small child. Oh, yeah. Too. Yeah. yeah. And he says something. He says, like... You need to train. You can't be distracted by yeah. toys. It's like, dude, she's she's, she's like, like five. a toddler. Yeah, she's clearly half his height. Thank goodness she forgave him before she remembered all of this, huh? Maybe the reconciliation <laughs> wouldn't have happened. Right. Yikes. So uh, when they remember that, the the party's resolve is re- you know renewed, and, and they they take on calamity Ganon, but. Gosh dang it, it just, the, her attacks can't get through. And and then the, the little guardian uh, summons up the last of its energy and races up the stairs and flings himself in a sacrificial move to, to damage Calamity Ganon. And wouldn't you know it, it just happens to cause enough damage that makes Calamity Ganon vulnerable to the party. Yeah. And, and they fight and they win and hooray. Yep. Hyrule is saved. And at this point, the uh, the characters from the future can return to their own right. timelines. It's really hard to imagine what those timelines look like uh, now that Calamity Ganon didn't rise in the past. Uh, yeah. But uh, thankfully, the game does not dwell on that because that would open a whole bunch of cans of worms. Because <laughs> time travel is weird. It is not within the bounds of a beat-em-up to cover. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and then... Uh, if the player can collects enough components in the post game, the little guardian Terrico can be revived by Pura and Robbie and come back and join Zelda, which is wonderful. Yay! Jasmine, did you have any trivia for us on this one? One thing I did find out was, uh, you know, the symbols that Impa puts on the the enemies and absorbs. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're all written in that Sheikah language. Mm-hmm. Um, so I looked it up, and it says FST, which is like, huh? Mm-hmm. I expected it to be more meaningful. I don't know why it said. Um, but as I was laying awake at night, as I do <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> uh, it like dawned on me that it probably stands for first, second, third. Oh, nice. I I did have something. It's it's trivia for Breath of the Wild, but gosh darn it, I had to save it. I mean, not save it. Um I just recently figured mm-hmm. this out, and there's no way I could not tell you guys about this. this oh, yeah, please hilarious. do. It's always time for more Breath of the Wild trivia. Yeah, 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 yeah. So when you're fighting the monk, Mazkoshia, apparently he gets distracted by bananas if you throw him out on the no field. No way. Yeah, there's a video. I watched it. And he does. He gets the cutest little, like, <laughs> ooh, and, like, runs over to it, just like the Yiga. And I'm like, hmm. <gasps> It's hilarious. Go check it out. Yeah, Mazkoshia, a <laughs> progenitor of the Yiga. Absolutely. I never would have thought ever to throw bananas on the field. How random. He loves them, apparently.
And with that, we've come to our final impressions of Age of Calamity. Spencer, what did you think about this game? I went on a little bit of a roller coaster with that. Um, I had never played a Musou game before, but uh, just kind of the reputation that it had from the people that I hang out with is that it was kind of overly simplistic, and it was mostly just one button mashing, which didn't seem that interesting to me. So when I first fired it up, I was kind of interested, well, excited to see that it was a little more complicated than that. Uh, And some of the kind of stuff that it transposes over from Breath of the Wild uh, at first I thought was really neat. So I did start out having an awful lot of fun with this game, and I was going out of my way to do a lot of the side content. But a lot of it doesn't really evolve, and there's a lot in this that drags it out and pads that playtime and wants you to just keep grinding in a way that did not really hold up for me. Um, Not that I'm not generally a fan of that, because I bring up Monster Hunter every time I can on this (laughs) podcast, and that has a lot of grinding and a lot of, you know, kind of repetition to min-max a character. But the difference is in that game, there's a lot of like nuance and technicality to the actual gameplay itself that kind of rewards you from engaging with it. Like just the act of hunting a monster over and over again is fun because even hundreds of hours in, you're still learning, improving, and like tweaking the play style in a way that's just inherently fulfilling. Whereas with this, after like 10 or 20 hours, I felt like I had found what I thought were the best combos for each character. And then it was just a matter of repeating those combos over and over again the whole rest of the game. It's kind of a startling contrast with the source material, right? Like Breath of the Wild is all about adaptation and changing what you do the entire like 80 hour experience. And despite it being the source material, that is not the case here. Yeah, I, I think this would have benefited a lot from either being a little bit shorter or just having each individual mission being a little bit shorter so that it fit a little better into like a pick up and play 15 minutes kind of bite-sized play like yeah. play style mm-hmm. i don't know I, I i didn't dislike it enough to turn me off from like the the genre as a whole i might check out more stuff i recommend the original hyrule warriors i i thought it was really good i, I mean i should at least give it a whirl I wish there was a demo, but there's not. Yeah, it'd be really nice. That game would demo well, too. Yeah, it would. Yeah, so that, that's my thoughts on the game. What uh, what was your takeaway of it, Chris? I think of this game as a fascinating mess. I was really hyped for it when it came out. Uh, it, it's interesting that with Hyrule Warriors, the original, when it came out, I thought, well, that doesn't seem like it'll work. And then I played it, and, um, you know, I enjoyed it uh, quite quite a bit. With this one... I was all primed from Hyrule Warriors, so I thought, gosh, you know, I'm sure they're going to catch lightning in a bottle twice. Now they've got all of the people who worked on Hyrule Warriors and made it so great, plus all of the folks who improved Hyrule Warriors in the Legends and Definitive Editions, working on a version of the game that pulls in my favorite Legend of Zelda. So what could go wrong? And the answer is quite a bit. Uh, like, like, Like we've talked about here, Breath of the Wild in no way lends itself to a Warriors game. And I'm not sure that earlier Zelda games did either as much. You know, like Hyrule Warriors just throws out entirely the concept of dungeons. It largely throws out 
how tools work. It certainly throws out puzzles from the Zelda series, any kind of exploration. So by all rights, earlier Zelda games shouldn't have mapped well onto a warrior's template either. But Breath of the Wild feels uniquely ill-suited to it. They imported the vertical environments to Age of Calamity, but not the climbing. So it's just difficult to get around. Um, Breath of the Wild has a paraglider to let you sail across the, the environment unimpeded. Here, because sailing across the environment doesn't really get you anywhere, and you don't have the capability to climb to a high point to use the paraglider, the paraglider mostly serves as a cosmetic way to move at the same speed across the battlefield, but not be able to easily engage enemy troops. I found the the mixture, and I guess this doesn't really speak to Breath of the Wild specifically, it's just, it, it's a game design evolution that this went through from the original Hyrule Warriors. But in Hyrule Warriors, the story mode and the side missions were entirely bifurcated. You could play the story mode and get through it in, shucks, what was it, maybe 15 to 20 hours? Or you could switch over to the adventure mode that had uh, all of the side missions, and the side missions were generally bite-sized, and you could knock a few of those out, you know, maybe do five of those in, in 30 minutes or something like that. Here they've combined the two. And I respect the decision to combine the two. I think it, on paper, is a really great idea because it, um, it, it almost forces you to have these kind of palette cleanser mini-missions between the big missions, which you could have done in Hyrule Warriors, the original, but you didn't need to. You could just stick with story mode. One of the consequences of this, though, is that each stage has level requirements. You will not hit those level requirements by simply playing through the story missions. You're obligated to play through side missions, which ends up breaking up the story, which I consider one of, strangely, one of the more compelling elements of this game. I really enjoyed spending time with, uh, spending more time with the characters of Breath of the Wild. It's just, it's a game at odds with itself. I would generally recommend this if you had a fair amount of time to kill and it was on sale, but as a full price game that's going to occupy a lot of your time, I don't think I could in good conscience recommend this game as a follow-up to Breath of the Wild. How about you, Jasmine? Gosh, you know, the first time I played it, I was slightly underwhelmed, I guess. It just didn't quite feel the same, and I wasn't sure why, and... I think some of it has to do with, you know, again, we talked about um, how it's trying to render all of these enemy mooks in, like, this high resolution, and it's like, you guys, don't do that. Oh, and, and I don't think we talked about it, but the two-player mode is functionally unplayable. Oh, God, it's awful. Yeah. I, I haven't, I barely tried it because there's, it's really bad. Yep. There's almost no enemies to kill. It's It's very slow. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, you know, it tries to render all these enemies, so there's fewer enemies on screen. So, again, you know, that was my, that's what I loved about the original was that it was this power fantasy, just, just mow through tons of enemies. And this one, I can barely mow through any, you know, they're just not packed in together like they used to be. It's it's actually kind of sad. Um, I, I barely even hit a thousand KOs finishing a mission. Same, like, same. goodness, that's pathetic. You know, the other game I'd be have like 2,000, 2,500, sometimes three if it was really good. And, you know, so it really lost that power fantasy feeling for me. Um, another thing, and I've I learned to live with it, 
but lack of changeable controls. Okay, this is a real problem. Uh, I think what they do is they force you to use the the typical Dynasty Warriors type controls. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the original Hyrule Warriors, um, I switched it around. They, they let you use more typical Zelda controls. But in this one, you can't change anything. It, it made it hard to play sometimes. Um, I went through, you know, I liked it and then, you know, I didn't like it. And then I picked it up again because I had to play it for the podcast and I kind of hate played my way (laughs) through some of it, I will admit. And then it started growing on me. I started liking it more. I accepted it for what it was. Um, You know, so it's it's okay. But, you know, it's, it's like this, you know, Hyrule Warriors was like better than it had any right to be. And Age of Calamity is just kind of right where it should be, which is, like, not great. It plays exactly like what a Zelda Warriors game should play like. <laughs> yeah, you know, I thought of that. I thought of that when we were talking about the last uh, Hyrule Warriors. Um, you were saying that Miyamoto came in and nixed a bunch of the more, like, Zelda stuff that they wanted to put into the original and you said that in this one, he yeah. didn't. And I, I really feel like it shows. It shows that there was no editorializing by Miyamoto because, yikes, this game just put stuff in, I think, because it's supposed to, because it was in Breath of the Wild, not because it was actually fun or good. Yeah, it kind of feels like this was a game designed by fans of Breath of the Wild, doesn't it? Like, not the designers of yeah. Breath of the Wild, but fans who liked what Breath of the Wild did. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think you're right on the money, Jasmine. I think it reflects yeah. the the absence of editorial control by yeah. Miyamoto. I hadn't even thought of that, but you're so right, Jasmine. I mean, I like the game okay. It's fun. I don't know if I'll buy the DLC. Uh, I would pick it up on sale. I'm kind of annoyed that I picked it up right away <laughs> for full price. It's definitely not worth it. Um, I, I was really mad at the game, mostly because I wanted to do those meaty missions. And the game forced me to have to do all these interstitial you know, random missions that I just didn't care about. Like, I don't want to do those. I want to do the big, big missions. And the the way that it had so much filler and it spaced out so much stuff out was really obnoxious. Yeah, it's weird how often you can see what they were going for and how much of it seems like a good idea and just an implementation isn't. Yeah. Gosh, right? And that just about covers it for the last Zelda game that we're playing in Season 1 of the Franchise Festival podcast. We hope you've enjoyed listening to us this season, and we hope you'll join us next time for our wrap-up episode where we talk about our impressions of the series overall. That'll be coming out on June 15th, 2021. We also hope that you'll join us for Season 2, in which we'll be covering Capcom's Resident Evil series. So be sure to catch that starting in July. As ever, we've been your hosts, Chris. I'm Jasmine. And I'm Spencer. Thanks for listening, folks. Goodbye.